Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of A Good Drop, where each week and every week we dive into the sugary sweetness of different kinds of wines and find out what they taste like. Yeah, and uh, this week we are jumping into Botrytis wine. Or noble rot, as it's often called. Yes, and we'll get into the why of that a little later on. Hmm, I'm excited for this one because I haven't had it yet. Uh, Anyway, I'm Stu. I'm Michael. Cheers. Cheers. So, Petritus wine. Well, obviously, it's still wine, <laughs> but, yep. but it's different with, yes. with a for a very good reason. And like most things alcohol-related, that reason was an accident, or so, or so they say. And it pretty much gave us a whole new style, really. Yeah, so the Petritus cinerea is a type of fungus that fits into the Ascomycote fungi kingdom. And uh, it can occur on fruits, vegetables, and flowers. Hmm. And on grapes, it causes them to shrivel and dry out somewhat. It dehydrates them, basically. Hmm. Uh, but it doesn't... Well, it doesn't do it just by itself. It needs certain conditions, like wine in general. They all need certain conditions to really produce the best they can do. So, in the in the case of... The botrytis fungus, they need wet, moist conditions. Um, quite often, the the uh, the vines that are closer to or closest to a, a river or the lowest points, lowest areas in the vineyard, get the 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 botrytis fungus first, and from there it spreads to the other grapes. Uh, the whole mechanism behind it is that the the fungus makes the skin thinner. And allows more moisture to get out, and so the, um, and so the, what's what's left over is more, basically a bigger, a higher sugar to juice ratio. Yeah, so the the juice is going, but the sugars are staying, mm. and what that means is that they need to use more grapes to get the same amount of juice that they would normally come up with, and that results in a far sweeter wine. Mm. And also, in a lot of cases, a far more boozier wine. Yeah, and uh, it also adds some extra flavours to the wines that they make out of it. With uh, sommeliers often describing extra flavours of honey, beeswax and ginger. And uh, that's believed to be because of high levels of a special aroma compound called phenylacetaldehyde <laughs> say that three times fast <laughs> and uh, funnily enough phenylacetaldehyde is also found in buckwheat and chocolate what that's buckwheat and chocolate they're three very very different things very different things yeah hmm. how curious but yeah so naturally the increased levels of sugar make it ideal for dessert wines hmm. so generally it's made off wines like semillon which our current one is a mm. what we're currently drinking is a semillon botrytis or or noble semillon yes and uh and i think riesling is the other one isn't it yeah the other one's commonly mm. used is riesling because they're they're more on the dessert side anyway yeah and then you've made it sweeter and more viscous by using a botrytis affected grape 
for those that don't know what viscous means, it means thicker. The, yes. The liquid is thicker. <laughs> yes. So let's, uh, I guess let's come into the exact one that we're drinking. Well, before we do, I just want to say a few more notes on the Botrytis mold. Oh, yes. Yes, by all means. Um, because on the other side of the coin, when the weather is not perfect, if the uh, grapes get inoculated or the mold spores find find root on the grapes the the idea in the ideal conditions the grapes or the the weather clears up and the grapes start to dry out creating these noble rieslings or noble semion um if the weather stays wet it turns into gray rot or gray mold and that is very bad as it just takes over and destroys the crop entirely yeah and naturally they don't want that so it's mm. a risky business yeah. Which could potentially be why Botrytis wines come in a bottle that is half the size of a standard. <laughs> That's true. And, well, that would also be because you got less juice. Yeah, there's, there's less to work with. For the same amount of grapes that would produce a batch of a standard semillon, hmm. you'd only be producing a half batch or, from Botrytis grapes. Or less, depending on the grape or how raisined the uh the grapes are mm. all right very true so what are we drinking yes yeah, so we are drinking the kukathama botrytis semillon 2016 now it is from the kukathama vineyard on the banks of the murrumbidgee river at dullington point in the riverina wine region in new south wales wow that's that's almost from my hometown Growing up in Canberra, that would have been pretty much just down the road. Ah. Hmm. But yeah, so as as you said, for near the water, these are literally growing on the banks of the Murrumbidgee River. That'd do it. Which would do it. <laughs> very, very close to some moisture there. Yeah. And um, New South Wales is a region that is common for growing white wines. And the river, the Riverina region grows uh, quite a large percentage of... Australian wines. Mm. Which is cr- quite impressive because there is not a lot of rain around Canberra or the ACT. It's a very dry area of of the country because it, like being an inland town, there, I know growing up there have been years where it's maybe rained two or three times and they're like big rains too. Yeah, so I guess it's... Just luck and proximity to the flowing water that's that that must do difference. it. Although, as I said before, they want the dry weather after the the rot take or the mold takes root. So that probably gives them a slight advantage over other places. Mm, well, and potentially they're not taking any chances. I mean, if you're trying to make a certain type of wine, you're not going to risk that that mold doesn't show up. Mm. They're probably putting it there themselves. Oh, absolutely. It's quite common for bigger vineyards to literally hose the grapes down with the noble rot. Quite literally hose them down. (laughs) Yeah, and then in the right area, it's just going to do what it does. In the right area, it's just going to do what it does. Mm. So... The the Kukathama, the Kukathama Estate. Was it Darlington? Kukathama Estate, Darlington Point, Botrytis Semion. Or, sorry, Nugent Estate. Yes. Kukathama 
Vineyard. Yes, Nugent Estate, Kukathama Vineyard. And according to the back of the bottle, the Kukathama is the name of the Nugent family's vineyard on the banks of the Murrumbidgee River. It is the original name of that property before the vineyards were planted and is the Aboriginal word meaning fertile land. Hmm. The hands on the Kukathama label pay tribute to the pioneers who have lived and cultivated the land spread out along the banks of the Murrumbidgee River, transforming it into prosperous, fertile land it is today. Succulent aromas of apricot nectar and fig... This elegant dessert wine has a luscious palate of lingering sweet fruit melded with marmalade and butterscotch, perfectly balanced with a crisp acid finish. I'm excited. Yeah, now interestingly, on the interwebs, I found a slightly different description of that wine. Oh? Which uh, described it as... Well, obviously the label doesn't describe the colour because you're looking at it, but it mm. describes it as being a straw colour with a golden hue, and I'm seeing that. It is a straw colour with a golden hue. But it then went on to say that it had enticing aromas of dried apricot and fig with marmalade and orange peel. Mm. Well, I mean, that is fruit. Mm. I mean, they mentioned the marmalade, but not, not orange peel specifically, I suppose. Yeah. But then it goes on to say that the palate is of apricot nectar, dried fig, and pineapple. Huh. With well-balanced acid giving it length and structure. Is that the same uh, vintage, though? Yes. Oh. It is also the 2016. How about that? That said, though, if that review was written last year, yep. the flavours would be slightly different. Of course. That's why. That's the whole point of ageing. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. So let's find out what it is. Cheers. Cheers. Well, it's definitely a very sweet aroma. Yeah, very sweet. Like that's the first thing I can taste, like sweet and wine. So fruity. Mm. Definitely taste the marmalade and orange peel. Yeah. Um, well, I reckon I can taste the butterscotch. Like it's almost like it's that's more of an aftertaste. It's like a buttery, buttery caramelly aftertaste. Yeah, it's really quite amazing. I've never had a wine quite like it. Me neither. This is very interesting. It is a sipping wine. You wouldn't want to slug this down. Oh, definitely not. No, you wouldn't even want to take a mouthful of it and slosh it around. I mean, as a dessert wine, you never want to do that anyway because you want to be drinking it from a smaller glass in a smaller amount. But if you take a slightly bigger sip, you can clearly taste the apricot nectar. Yeah, and there's that slight acid on the tongue and mm. a very pleasant, fresh finish. It's like a, a almost a sweet tart flavor. Mm. And, and a little bit of raisin as well. Wow, this is very interesting. Yeah, it's got a lot more complexity to it than I expected. Like yeah, a lot exactly. of dessert wines, they're just <laughs> sweet and pleasant. Like a Moscato? Yeah. But, like, that, but that's not really wine, as you so carefully pointed out in many previous episodes. Mm. <laughs> well, that's true, but... You know, even Rieslings mm. are, they're very sweet, 
but they often don't have the complexity that this has. Mm. Yeah. Like they tend to be, you know, they're sweet, they're floral, occasionally slightly citric, but this has so many different flavors to it. Yeah. Huh. And of course, it's not really fair to be comparing this to a Riesling. We should be comparing it to a Semillon. That is, well, same thing still applies. Um, it's obviously much sweeter. It's much more complex. Um, it's, I mean, it's not, because it's so uh, sugary, it's it's not as refreshing as a Semillon. For yeah. Sure. Oh, yeah, but then I suppose you wouldn't have a Semillon as a dessert wine, whereas this is a dessert wine. It would be yeah. it's perfect a, to have after a meal. Yeah, it's in a class of its own. Yeah. So, let's get into some history. Where did it come from? In 1526 in Bergenland, Austria, a that's the, the earliest record we can find of Botrytis wine. It's a... Uh, but there's not really anything concrete. It's just... It's noted that people were consuming it and selling it. Yeah, people were probably making it. They're saying that it was likely a Trockenbier and Auslasser. And that- a what? <laughs> I'm impressed you could pronounce that. And uh, that sale of the wine was recorded in 1653, but that's a long time after it was allegedly started to be made. Mm. But that was when Prince Esterhazy purchased a container of it, which he slowly enjoyed for the following two centuries. Well, him and his family, I would say. Yeah. I would be very impressed if he was alive for all those two centuries. So there are origin legends of Botrytis in Hungary, Germany, and Bordeaux, which all attribute the origin of the wine to accidental late harvest. Mm. But those all have a later origin date than the 1526 in Austria. Mm. So a, a more uh, well-known one is the... Um, or an, um, one of the more popular myths is that the practice originated in... Uh, in Germany in 1775, when Riesling production, when Riesling producers at uh, Schloss Johannesburg um, traditionally awaited for the say-so of the estate owner Heinrich von Bibra, Bishop of Bishop of Fulda, before uh, actually cutting the grapes. Um, in this particular year, as the legend goes, give give it a grain of salt, or take it with a grain of salt. The the messenger was robbed en route to delivering the order and the whole process was delayed by three weeks. At this point, the the rot had started to set in and the harvest was thought to be useless. So they just gave it away, gave it to the peasants and they decided, you know what, we've got nothing to lose anyway. Let's make some booze out of it. And, out from, and from that came the sweetest most delicious wine you can imagine. Yeah. And uh, so obviously that's one of the one of the later legends from from Germany. From Germany, exactly. And uh, naturally they would claim it every naturally they would claim it everybody always claims that they created a thing if they've got their own legend story. Mm. 
behind it. But uh, when you consider that in Bergenland, the Seewinkle subregion is especially good for sweet wines because of its wetlands. Apparently in the fall, Shallow Lake New Zealand casts a fog. And because the vineyards creep to the edges of the wetlands, they soak in the fog until the sunshine burns it off. And that fog would encourage botrytis. So it makes sense that it could have occurred there Mm. and undoubtedly would have occurred because of a Trockenbirnauslasa, which means dried berry out harvest. So there is. Or late harvest, as. You could probably translate it to now. Yeah, as you could probably translate it to now. Yeah, because oftentimes they would do a berenauslasa, which is berry out harvest or just a late harvest of very ripe berries. Mm. But the dried out version of that, of course, is, well, they've waited very late. They're dried out. Let's harvest them and use them anyway. Mm. And so it could, in fact, be a very similar story arising from all the countries that claim ownership of being the first ones to produce it. I I would I would agree with that too, because the each little piece of information sort of correlates to the other stories, even if they are in a different place, um, like uh, beer in China and beer in England, or beer in sorry beer in China and beer in Europe. They probably had very similar origins, but having uh, having been created separately in two. Two side, basically two sides of the world. Yeah, I, mean, I suppose it's slightly different here when we consider that all the countries that claim ownership of it are in the same kind of area. Mm. And I, naturally, they were all already growing wine at the time. But something changed and they decided, let's not get rid of these. Let's just use them anyway. Yeah. And off it went. And off it went. Yeah. And we're thankful for that. Well, there's, there's so many interesting alcohols that have come about because because of accidents, because of serendipity. Like, even one of our most recent episodes, Linny, or A- Aquavit. The, the Linny Aquavit went to Jaka- from Norway to Jakarta and back again because he couldn't, the guy couldn't sell it in Indonesia. So, yeah. back it went, and it was even better than could be expected. Yeah, and then, of course, he would have just gone... Would have gone, well, how about that? Let's try and do that again. Hmm. And he reproduced it, did it again, and here we are today. Yeah, and of course, it's the same thing with this. As soon as they realize, as soon as any industry realizes what it is that's causing this fantastic thing that happened by accident, Mm. they're going to attempt to repeat it. Oh, for sure. For sure. What I haven't found out... What I haven't uh, seen much of is any information on how the uh, Philozera outbreak affected the Botrytis wine. Yeah, and potentially it didn't. And because some, you know, if it already had fungus on it, Mm. it may have saved it from from the Philozera. Maybe, maybe not, because... The the rot doesn't re- doesn't need to take hold until late in the game, and if the aphids are eating the roots, eating the the grapes, they just destroy it anyway. Mm, so then it may just be a case of nobody bothered to record it. Hmm. 
Because if you look at anything that old, they're going to record that it happened. They're going to record where it happened. Yeah. But is somebody going to go to the effort of recording, well, it destroyed this many semi-long grapes, this many Riesling grapes, this many Shiraz grapes, mm. destroyed this many that had noble rot on them? Well, I suppose... Probably not. No. And when it's destroying like 70 or 80% of the wine crops or the wine, the, the, the vines, if it's destroying 70 plus percent of the vines, I think they're just, just going to record the total amount. Yes, the total devastation. Yeah, and it was a devastation. How many bottle caps would you rate this? Oh, I would uh, rate this quite highly. I would rate it quite highly indeed. I think uh, maybe eight and a half. Mm. I mean, this, this is probably my favorite dessert wine that I've had. Okay. Certainly in the white dessert wines. Like I, but the reds are sweet with more of a bitterness to them. Mm. More, more body with the tannins as yeah. well. Um, I, I would also give this an eight and a half, uh, maybe an eight actually, because while it tastes amazing, it's a very occasional thing. Oh yeah, I, I wouldn't want to have it all the time. So it loses a couple of percentage points for that reason. Like it's, it's very very sweet, but very like complex and. And quite delicious, mm. um, but because it's so sweet and the uh, bottle sizes are small and the price is quite high, I would rate it lower for those reasons. Yeah, I mean, as far as bottle size and price goes, it's pretty much on par with a a tawny port, mm. or just a port if you're in Europe and are actually buying this stuff from Portugal. Yeah, well, it's, it's still tawny. Oh, that's true. It is still a potentially. Potentially, it's just that here we have to call it Tawny Port because it, or just Tawny, Tawny because we can't call it Port because it's not from Portugal. Mm. If it's local, obviously we can acquire the actual Port. But um, so, I mean, final thoughts on this. It it surprised me. I was not expecting it to be so complex and interesting. Um, I was, I guess, I was expecting something along the lines of the musket. Yeah, I, I have to agree that I was very pleasantly surprised with this. Mm. Um, still, eight out of eight out of ten. I mean, that's still a pretty high rating. Yeah, that that is a pretty high rating. Yeah. Um. So, uh, time for the plugs, and then yeah. we'll tell you about uh, the next episode. Mm. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you liked what you heard and haven't already, we'd love you to subscribe to us. Um, hit that like button or, uh, wherever you find your uh, podcasts. We're, uh, sp- we're on Spotify, Podbean, uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music. You can find us as a good drop all about alcohol. We are also on the socials. We are on Facebook and Instagram as a good drop podcast. Look out for the beer icon. Uh, we've also got a good old fashioned website where we've got lists of, well, we, where we've got a big list of uh, previous episodes. Uh, if you want to share a particular episode with a friend or check out our library of previous episodes, uh, go to our website, agooddrop.com.au. And if you've got any comments, questions, feedback, uh, suggestions for future episodes, send us an email to agooddrop at gmail.com. And now do be sure to tune in to our next episode 
when we talk about German beer and Oktoberfest. Mm. It's that time of year, and we thought we'd jump on the uh, the German beer drinking bandwagon. <laughs> yes, so that's going to be a very good episode, full of tasty beers and beer steins. Hmm. And lots of uh, lots of bratwurst and Kransky and other kinds of German sausages as well, or German style food because you can't have German beer without German food. Uh, anyway, I'm looking forward to that. My taste buds are tingling already. Oh uh, yes. Yeah. So until then, cheers. Cheers.